gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And we have a special guest this week. We're going to be talking to Glenn Butner. He has written The Son Who Learned Obedience, a Theological Case Against the Eternal Submission of the Son. And um, I will link in the episode notes where you can purchase it. Uh, I did want to mention um, you can also purchase it on Kindle, which I did. Uh, I really like having Kindle editions of books. And Rachel and I just really highly recommend this book. Um, a lot of the gals in our group and, uh, you know, have been discussing these debates. And this is a really great book for that will help you understand it better. And Glenn is Assistant Professor of Theology and Christian Ministry at Sterling College. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, we've been talking about this debate, I think, almost since the beginning of our podcast. In fact, uh, before Rachel was my co-host, she came on to talk to us about this debate. And I guess before we get into our questions, I'm kind of wondering um, what encouraged you to write the book? Well, um, I kind of stumbled into the debate by accident. Um, I was in a doctoral program in theology, writing a dissertation on a relatively different subject, but uh, I was also trying to specialize in the doctrine of the Trinity because I thought it would help me get a job and because I just find it interesting and important. And a pastor of mine asked me to come to a conference on um, the doctrine of the Trinity. And the person teaching the conference was an advocate of the eternal submission of the Son and structured his entire explanation of the Trinity around that idea. Um, and I'd never heard of such a thing uh, nearing the end of my PhD in theology focusing on the Trinity. Um, so I got pretty worked up that night, and that spun off into an article uh, in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society that was warmly received um, and printed about half a year before the whole online debate blew up in 2016. And I'm a nobody that nobody was really listening to as there were major somebodies from all over the place in that debate. And I just felt frustrated that a lot of the doctrines that I thought were most important to this question um, were not being addressed in that debate. And so I just kept pressing on from what the article had started and expanded into a book. Um, finally found somebody who would publish it, and here I am. Well, and I, I really appreciate you writing the book. It was, uh, it was great to read. It's, um, you know, I can tell that you have an academic background in the, in the book, but it was very accessible for the lay reader. Well, uh, you did a good job explaining things that so people would go, oh, yeah, I understand why that's important. So I guess you know, to start off the topic, why is the doctrine of the Trinity so important? Why does it, why does it matter? Great question. Um, 
and unfortunately one that a lot of people miss out on. Um, sometimes we treat the doctrine of the Trinity like something we can just cast aside. Um, it's not important to the church. People think it's not important to theology. It's really technical and confusing. I think that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, the Trinity is the Christian God. You know, we can talk about divine attributes like being all-powerful or all-knowing, and that doesn't set apart the Christian understanding of God from the Muslim understanding of God, from the deist understanding of God. It's only when we get to understand God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we're talking in a distinctively Christian manner. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is the attempt to explain how God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if that is our understanding of God, then that understanding is going to spill over into all the other doctrines in theology. So the doctrine of salvation, our explanation of how God saves us, uh, is of course going to be connected to our explanation of who God is. Um, our doctrine of the church, who we are as the people of God, is going to be connected with our understanding of who God is. So if you end up getting the Trinity wrong, um, you know, I, I think it can cause problems across systematic theology. Uh, so the doctrine of the Trinity is usually when I teach systematics, the first starting point that you have to unpack before you can really do anything else well. So I, I know some different letters are used to describe what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, we see ESS and EFS and ERAS. Could you talk about what what those are and, and what specifically we're talking about? Sure. Yeah. Um, it is a bit of a, a word soup there. You can come up with all sorts of acronyms, and I'm sure these aren't the last ones. Um, the original is probably EFS, Eternal Functional Subordination. Um, ESS is the Eternal Submission of the Son, and ERAS is Eternal Relations of Authority and Submission. And they're basically subtly different ways to talk about the same thing. Um, the slight differences in vocabulary matter at a very technical level, but generally speaking, it refers to the idea that in eternity, the son submits to the father and is in some sense uh, subordinate in role uh, or submissive uh, as his personal property um, or obedient um, as his hypostatic nature. Um, and that this is the basis for understanding the difference between the father and the son, or if not the basis, it is one important factor there. Um, and so typically that Trinitarian claim, though, is taken a step further and applied to questions of gender roles. Uh, the assumption being that this pattern within the Trinity is somehow, uh, somehow illuminates what it means to be husband and wife or to be man and woman. And there are some subtle differences there in terms of how different theologians make this connection. But I'd say painting broad brush, um, that's what the doctrine is about. And that's what the acronyms mean. And I tend to uh, use the terminology EFS, um, recognizing that some might object just because it's older. So I'll probably wind up doing that a lot in the podcast. Apologies to anyone who'd prefer another acronym. Thank you. That's actually very helpful. And you're right that they, at times they're used almost interchangeably. Other times I've seen people insist that they mean one and not the other and that they see a real distinction. So it's, it's nice to have that explained for us. Um, why does it matter what we believe about submission in the Trinity? A lot of reasons. It's, it's hard to even sum it up. To, to make it very abstract, and this won't really convince anybody that this is important yet, but if, as I said, the doctrine of the Trinity spills over into other doctrines, then if you understand the Trinity um, from the standpoint of submission, then that's going to affect other doctrines. Um, what's the big deal, deal there? Um, here's where it gets a little more concerning. Um, historically, uh, there aren't theologians who explained the doctrine of the Trinity in the context of submission in this way. Now, those who defend eternal submission, they'll point to isolated quotes from different you know, major historical theologians and from major 20th century theologians, but we just don't find ancient books on the Trinity that are explaining the Trinity in terms of submission and obedience as the core in the way that we do from someone like Bruce Ware or uh, to the extent that it plays a role in the theology of someone like Wayne Grudem. Um, so that shift in the doctrine of the Trinity then spills over into other doctrines. And the main thesis of my book is that that spillover actually causes catastrophic problems in doctrines like Christology, 
Um, so our understanding of the person and nature of Christ, um, it causes catastrophic problems in the doctrine of the atonement. Not to mention the fact that I have moral concerns about using the Trinity as a pattern for any social relationship, uh, except where that would be explicitly advocated in scripture. Um, and I just don't see the scriptural warrant for using submission in the Trinity as a basis for gender roles. And that, that can cause some, some problems there, um, arguably some damaging problems. And I'm sure we'll get into those details later on in this discussion. So how, I guess I'll just use EFS since that's probably what, what you're going to be using, but how is EFS different from the Pactum Salutis? And maybe you should explain what that is too, for those that don't know. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and honestly, to be fair, it's one that I only treat in, in passing in the book because there's just so much to discuss. So maybe this will give me a chance to unpack it a bit more. Um, but the Pactum Salutis um, is one of several covenants that Reformed theology traditionally points to as a means of explaining what God has done to save humankind. Um, so it refers to the covenant between Father, Son, and Spirit by which they decided the means that salvation would be provided for humankind. Um, it's usually understood as the first in the series of covenants. So this covenant was made prior to um, the actual offer of grace to human beings, um, probably prior to the even act of creating humans themselves. Um, so that's the Pactum Salutis. And that language of, of a pact or a covenant often evokes imagery of some sort of agreement between the father and the son. The father offers something and the son accepts, or the father um, tells the son um, to go and fulfill this covenant in a certain manner. Um, so some have said that essentially this is the historical origin of the modern doctrine of eternal functional subordination. Um, I don't find that very compelling for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that I think the idea of a covenant um, is being used somewhat loosely when we talk about the Godhead. Um, so any any term that we use in theology to speak of God, um, most theologians would say is an analogical term. So it applies in one sense the same way as it would to uh, things on earth, uh, but in another sense, it's very different. So we say, uh, God is strong, we don't mean that he's worked out at the gym for a long time and built up muscles. So that's the difference. But we do mean something like he can do more than he would be able to do if we said he was weak. Um, and the same is true of a, a human that we would call strong. So taking that principle of analogy, when we talk about a covenant um, among the members of the Godhead toward redemption, I think that we need to make some distinctions there between what that covenant looks like and between what a covenant on earth would look like. Um, and as a result of that, I don't believe that it's very appropriate to talk about obedience um, and submission as a component of that pact for all the theological reasons that you know, I'll be laying out in the course of this discussion. Um, and I briefly reference in my book, there are, um, there's evidence that this was intended by some major figures uh, in the development of the doctrine of the Pactum Salutis. Witsius in my book, where Witsius explains that um, the Son as God, and I'm quoting him here, neither was nor could be subject to any law, to any superior, that being contrary to the nature of the Godhead, which we now suppose the Son to have in common with the Father. He goes on to say, by undertaking to perform this obedience in the human nature in its proper time, the Son as God did no more subject himself to the father than the father with respect to the son, to the owing that reward of debt, which he promised him a right to claim. So that quote, even though eternal functional subordination wasn't you know, really a, a fully developed idea among any theologians in that generation, that quote from Witsius seems to be denying it before it ever began. Um, the pactum does not mean that the son is subject to the father. He's under his command. He's submitting. Um, so I, I think it's just a completely different doctrine on the table here. And thank you. That's actually very helpful. Um, you, you, you mentioned something about how EFS affects uh, how we look at uh, the atonement. And, you know, you know, certainly if there are, 
one of the charges that have brought up about the, the view of uh, the uh, one view of the atonement is that, you know, penal substitution is like divine child abuse. Right. And you mentioned it in your book about how EFS could, could be used to support such a, a charge. And I just wonder if you'd talk about, you know, the, what your thoughts are on how the, we should look at the atonement versus what EFS does here. Right. In this, this issue. Right. Um, and I guess I should mention as a preface before I answer that question, and I think it's a good and important one, um, that I don't find EFS to be scripturally warranted. I don't find a biblical basis for it. And I, I treat that extensively in my book. So I don't want to be misheard as saying, um, I think this has problematic moral consequences. And so therefore, I'm going to disregard the Bible. Um, I would rather argue this is not biblical. Um, and on top of that, to make matters worse, this may have some negative uh, ethical consequences. Um, so with that footnote, so nobody misunderstands me, um, one common objection made against penal substitution from various quarters is that this depicts God as somehow vindictive um, and angry and abusive toward his own son. Um, and so it becomes this symbol or this image of divine child abuse. Um, the best theological responses that I've seen to this claim uh, appeal to the doctrine of inseparable operations, the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit work together in all things that they do toward the created world. And so because of this, it's not so much that the Father, acting on his own, sends the Son, and then acting on his own, uh, punishes the Son, more appropriately, we would say that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will together that the Son come and act together to ensure the Son's punishment. So it's not that the Father is punishing the Son, who's an inferior, but it's that the three equal persons of the Godhead are working together um, to the extent that the Son, by virtue of the Incarnation, can bear our punishment for us. So that minimizes some of this abusive pattern that is alleged against penal substitution. Um, the problem is with the idea of the son eternally submitting to the father as that you've already divided the actions there. You have the father commanding, you have the son obeying, you have the father sending, you have the son submitting, uh, you have the father in authority, you have the son um, who's taken a functionally subordinate role. And as a byproduct of that, it, it does appear to be much more accurate to say that this is a powerful figure um, who is then disciplining and punishing his subordinate. Um, where this particularly concerns me, though, is when you then use the doctrine of the Trinity as a pattern for, um, say, uh, gender roles for husband and wife. Um, and on a, a complementarian reading of Ephesians 5, for example, uh, where it talks about um, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, and then husbands are to love their wife as Christ loved the church, you know, giving himself up for the church. On that model, if, if you read that in a complementarian way, and obviously egalitarians would disagree with me here, um, but that would say that the, the husband, um, the one who has some authority over the wife who's submitting, is the one who's supposed to sacrifice here, to, mm -hmm. to suffer, to bear um, the burdens of uh, you know, whatever troubles come the way of the couple. Um, if you're using the Trinity on this account as the pattern for the marriage relationship, then what you have is the one who has power, in this case, the father being treated as the symbol of the husband, actually um, different from the one who's bearing the pain, uh, where Christ is here taken as the image of the wife. And so those differing power dynamics, they don't automatically lead to abuse, but I can see where pretty easily if that's what's being preached, someone in an abusive relationship, you know, might say, oh, well, this is my role. That's what submission is, is bearing the pain somebody else puts on me. Or inversely, um, the person in authority saying, oh, well, this is just what somebody who submits should do is bear the punishment that I give them. My role as the one in authority is to punish. Um, and that's a very different image that can be played out in some very damaging ways in the lives of men and women in the church. Um, all without, I believe, scriptural foundation. Um, so that's that's one reason that I'm concerned about linking this doctrine with atonement and penal substitution. You know, one of the things that Colleen and I have talked about in a, 
in our discussions and about marriage and abuse and how this is applied is that there certainly is that kind of application at times. And uh, marriage is, is called for women a holy burden, right, to mm-hmm. bear, you know. And so you're, you're not at all off base. There really are practical applications. It's not you know, just theoretical about how this is happening. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I was thinking that same exact thing, that exactly what you're describing, we've seen that play out. You kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are the dangers of applying eternal functional subordination to relationships between men and women? And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, too, if, if this is being used to justify certain ways of viewing men and women. Um, like, okay, this is what we believe about men and women. How can we prove this from Scripture? Oh, we'll use this eternal functional subordination. Right. Um, I have tended to study this more at the level of doctrine. I've not tried to dig into historical sources, um, 20th century historical sources to see exactly where it originated. But um, Kevin Giles has done that work and he's claimed that um, originally this idea of submission in the Trinity was developed as a means of explaining how uh, man and woman can be equal in nature, but different in role. And we actually do see that language more often in early accounts of uh, eternal functional subordination. Um, So egalitarians were objecting to the idea that women should submit because they would say, okay, well, if one has authority and the other does not, clearly they're not actually equal in nature. But we see in places like Genesis 1 um, that male and female are both created in the image of God, suggesting they do have an equal nature. So the response is, well, Um, In the Trinity, we have equal nature between father and son, yet we have authoritative and submissive role. So the claim here is if it's possible in the Trinity, it's possible in gender relationships. So it was, I think initially, if Giles is right, a supplemental argument uh, to defend complementarianism, sort of moving beyond direct exegesis to adding a a logical defense to a common counter argument. Um, So besides the problems of abuse here, um, partly I'm concerned because the role of the Trinity has assumed a much larger place in in some corners at least in explaining gender roles, Um, whereas that's not really the approach that the Bible itself takes. So one problem here is we're moving from, you know, let's have these exegetical debates about what does Ephesians 5 mean? Uh, What does, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 mean? Instead of having those discussions we've moved to the level of, of doctrine and are debating the Trinity in order to determine gender roles. And I think that's going to be a lot less, uh, less of a safe approach than just exegeting what's clearly taught in the Bible. Um, so that's another concern. Um, but beyond that, if you link the Trinity too closely with a particular view of gender roles, then if someone slightly disagrees with you on gender roles, uh, then they must have fundamentally misunderstood the Trinity, which is then a core doctrine of Christian faith. And so you can wind up in circumstances where someone says, well, uh, you know, the wife needs to stay at home. Well, no, the wife can work, you know, in any context in the public sphere she'd like to. And based on that disagreement, both sides could call one another arch heretics because clearly, you know, you're distorting the very nature of reality because these roles are based on the nature of the Godhead. Um, and there are quotes um, that I've found in, in different theologians who are arguing for eternal submission who will say, um, for example, feminists, um, evangelical feminists are actually chafing at the very nature of God. Um, and I don't think that that's particularly accurate. I think that's quite unfair, as a matter of fact. Even the label evangelical feminists, I, I don't find particularly compelling. Um, but it's elevating to the level of a core of you know, central orthodoxy, something that I think is more peripheral and creating all sorts of conflict uh, where that doesn't need to exist. And so it shuts down the ability to even have conversations about how does my marriage look and how does the marriages that you are part of look. Um, and it doesn't allow there to be flexibility for us to practice those marriages in slightly different ways. Uh, thank you. You, uh, you reflect a lot of what, um, what Colleen and I have, have addressed uh, in these topics and how it's applied and a lot of our concerns. So um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in, in your book is you talk about 
um, in, in dealing with God and using terms describing that it's uh, it's analogies. But with all analogies, there's something that's similar and there's something that's that has to be dissimilar. Um, you know, for example, father and son, and how that can apply to God and not be like our father and son relationships. But um, you talk about how the word submission, when you when you when it's in the context of divine attributes, that submission would lose its meaning, right? That I think the quote was, the language of submission is entirely inappropriate because it's incompatible with divine attributes. Right? Right. And, any, and any attempt to make it, it compatible would render it nearly meaningless. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, it was very interesting to me in, in kind of a, a new aspect of some of the discussions. So how would you explain that? Why would submission be um, meaningless in this discussion? Right. Um, well, here's where we start to see how these doctrines are connected. So we're getting into the doctrine of God, the divine attributes, um, what you think about the Trinity in systematic theology should be logically compatible with what you think about the divine attributes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that among some of the figures who are defending eternal functional subordination, that we've also seen them begin to modify some of the divine attributes. Um, so um, on a classical account of the divine attributes, so something that would be in line um, with, you know, the Westminster Catechism or, um, you know, uh, Augs Augsburg Confessions or with various medieval treatments of the divine attributes and so forth and so on. Um, God is eternal in the sense of not experiencing um, a succession of moments. Um, so one reason that the idea of uh, obedience and submission doesn't make a lot of sense for me in the Trinity is the way we experience submission and obedience, the one who's in charge gives a command, time passes, the one who is submissive hears the command, deliberates about whether to obey, and then proceeds to obey. But there's no progression of time like that in the Godhead. So that's already one place where submission is sort of breaking down. Um, that's a big deal, but that's not even the biggest one here. Classically, um, the property of will was associated with nature, with being. Um, there's one undivided nature, one undivided being that is God. And so there is one undivided will. So we see classically many affirmations that there is one will in the Godhead. Um, any submission we've seen in the created world involves one person with their unique will commanding and another person with a numerically distinct will uh, yielding to the first person. So that two wills come to agreement because the first commanded. Um, in the Godhead, we don't have multiple wills like that. There's only a single will. So again, it's difficult to see how this would qualify as submission in any sense. Um, and those are just two examples. I, I go through many more in my chapter. But um, at the end of the day, once we negate all of those aspects of submission, basically all that I can find remaining is equivalent to what we might say in terms of order or taxis. The father is first, the son second, and the spirit third. There's a certain ordering within the Godhead. And that's a very far cry from submission. And that's not at all what most people mean when they're referring to submission and the relationships between men and women. Um, so it doesn't really, doesn't add anything in terms of theological meaning. Um, and it actually distorts uh, more accurate words that we could be using to convey the same thing. I wanted to ask, just a follow-up, you mentioned about the divine wills. What is so important about the, about the issue with divine will and how um, eternal functional subordination, um, I guess, reimagines or reworks the divine will in a way that um, undermines other areas? Like, what would you say is why it's an important uh, right. doctrine? Yeah. Um, so... I think the clearest place it comes out is in Christology. Um, so there's this classic saying by Gregory of Nazianzus that that which Christ, that which the son did not assume, he did not redeem. Um, so he takes on a full human nature um, and that nature is pure and holy and without sin. And then um, through theosis to use the ancient Greek terminology or something that I'm more comfortable with is a reformed theologian. Uh, when you speak of the doctrine of union, how I'm connected with Christ, the Holy Spirit then works in me to essentially make my nature like Christ's human nature. Um, so I can't be united to his divinity, but I am joined with his purified humanity. 
and thereby I'm purified. Well, that means that he must have a full humanity because total depravity tells me that my mind, my will, my body, my soul are all corrupted by sin. And all of that needs purification. If Christ doesn't have a human will that my will can be conformed to, then my will is trapped in sin. It's still left in its sin nature. And that's a huge problem. That means that I can't have total sanctification. At the final day when I'm raised and stand before God, that part of me is not going to be conformed to Christ because Christ didn't have that part, at least on the classical understanding of these doctrines. Um, so because of this, um, the idea of salvation and, and sanctification um, was linked with the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that Christ is two natures in one person um, in such a way that his human nature was explained to be fully human and to have uh, every aspect of human nature. It has a human will, a human mind, uh, a human soul, a human flesh. And in classical Christology and what was developed in the patristic era, we see various heresies that are denied by early Christians because they reject one aspect of this human nature. So docetism denies that he has real human flesh. He only appears to be in flesh. Um, Apollinarianism denies that he actually has the human soul or the human mind, depending on how you interpret that. Um, and then a heresy called monothelitism denies that he actually had a human will. Um, these all create big problems that I unpack more in the book. Um, but the idea is to avoid these problems, he needs a human will. He only has a human nature. He's not a human person. And so if will is not a property of nature, he just doesn't have it. Um, well, the language that we use in Christology is the exact same language we use in the Trinity. So if in Christology we say will belongs to nature, then in the Trinity we have to say will belongs to nature. And if we say in Christology that um, will does not belong to person, then in the Trinity we should say will is not proper to person. When we turn to the Trinity, there's a single nature of the single essence of God, which means there's a single will. As soon as you start saying that the persons have wills that are distinct, then that translates into Christology. Uh, to the idea that will is proper to person, which means that Christ doesn't have a human will. So that traditional understanding of sanctification falls apart. That claim that Christ is fully human falls apart. Um, and those aren't claims that just play a nice logical role in theology. Those are claims that are actually built from the cumulative testimony of the inspired scriptures. Um, so we wind up with a lot of passages of the Bible that these alternative theories just can't make sense of anymore, which builds sort of an indirect cumulative argument against um, the eternal submission of the Son um, based on the Bible. Rachel and I just did an episode on the creeds and, um, you know, we we're talking about the Nicene Creed and even how these are things that you were mentioning, some of those heresies that... Um, you know, these, these are things that were debated a long time ago, and right. we're not just making up, this is what we believe about the Trinity. But I, I'd like to know, and I think this is a, something that even several of the gals in our group were, were talking about, is instead of EFS, ESS, how should we describe the unity and diversity of, in the Trinity? That's a great question. Um, and I'll know I don't listen to any podcast, so I, I haven't really listened to yours, but it sounds like you're covering lots of content I'd enjoy. So uh, it's a shame that I don't. Maybe I should pick it up over the summer or something. Um, how should we speak of the unity and diversity of the Trinity? Um, I think there are several different things that we can say here. First, obviously, is just the distinctive names of each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, being able to name each person distinctively um, is a helpful starting point that pretty much any Christian can grasp. As you're wanting to get more technical and precise, the traditional language is that the Father eternally generates or begets the Son, and that the Father eternally breathes or spirates the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And there's this big debate between Eastern and Western Christians about whether that is also through the Son or also by the Son. Um, but I break down in, um, I believe it's the fourth chapter of my book, how this language of generation actually can fit with the language of analogy. Um, so when we say 
the father eternally generates the son or eternally begets the son. We don't mean that there was biological reproduction happening here. Uh, we don't mean that it happened in time um, because God is outside of time and because God is immaterial. Um, what we do mean is that the son has a likeness to the father. That's something like the likeness that a child has to a parent. And we find support for that in the Bible, that uh, Christ is called the very image of God. Um, we are only in the image. So we are somehow less uh, clearly depicting who God is than Christ does. Um, so that terminology is then another step of precision. Um, and from that, you can get to even more technical levels. Each, um, each person is said to have a personal property that is sort of recognized as a result of these processions. So the father is unbegotten. Um, the son is begotten. Uh, the spirit is spirated or the spirit proceeds. There's some disagreement there among um, East and West in terms of preferred terminology. Um, and I think all of those are more helpful ways to think about the distinction between the persons. Um, when it comes to the economy, toward what they do in salvation, by virtue of the incarnation, Jesus, um, the Son alone, takes on human nature. So we can say a whole lot about the Son to help us distinguish the economic trinity. So what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done in the created order. Um, same thing with the mission of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, for example. Um, so I think we've got a lot of ways to distinguish between the persons without needing to rely on this language of submission and obedience. You know, when we, we talk with people about EFS, CSS, um, you know, they'll start pointing to the passages in the scripture and say, well, what about when uh, Jesus says that the Father is greater than I? Or when he talks about doing the Father's will, it, there's several of them. Um, right. how, how should we interpret those passages that are, are being used to support EFS, ESS? So, there are a couple of things that sort of can help clarify those passages. Um, one thing that is often appealed to and both sides agree with is that um, during the time of the incarnation, because he was taking the form of a servant, as Philippians puts it, there are places where the son is said to submit to the father, to be in obedience to the father as by virtue of his earthly incarnate role as the savior. Um, so many of the passages you look at are simply referring to that time period. This, this emptying of himself, not to say that he sets aside divine attributes, but to say that he takes on a humble role for the purpose of our salvation. Um, where we often run into um, debates is that folks who claim that the eternal submission of the Son is biblical will then say there are examples of submission outside of the context of that um, incarnate life. Or they'll read something like Christ saying that the Father is greater than him and say, well, he's not just saying that about his incarnate life. What he's saying is also true of the eternal trinity. Um, and um, I think contextually, there's not a lot of warrant to that sort of line of interpretation. So one of the big passages that's always cited is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, so after this is speaking of the time of the resurrection, um, the time of the final kingdom of Christ's reign, God has come to earth. And in, in that context, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, um, we read that at the end, the son will be subjected to the father. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And people say, well, look, this is evidence that eternally, um, in eternity future, which already itself is sort of uncharacteristic and novel terminology. We don't usually speak of eternity future and past in a, in a technical sense, but setting that aside, they will say in eternity future, that's evidence that the son will still be submitting after the incarnation. And I think this is a mistake because Christ's incarnate life, of course, was in roughly the first three decades of the first millennium, but he still has flesh today. He is still interceding as our great high priest. Um, you know, Hebrews emphasizes this. He, as the Council of Chalcedon puts it, the divine and human natures are joined inseparably and indivisibly. Um, so when he ascended to the Father, he didn't leave that human nature behind. And that's part of the good news of his priestly intercessory role. We still have human representation in the very presence of God, thanks to Christ's incarnation. Um, 
So it could still be a reference to human obedience. He's submitting by virtue of his human nature. Um, so if will is proper to nature, uh, so he has a human will and a divine will, traditionally theologians have said acts or operations are proper to nature's too. So because he has a human nature, Jesus can be hungry. Because he has a divine nature, he can forgive sins and so forth and so on. Um, and that gets to be a very technical discussion that I talk about more in my book. Um, we're not saying that one nature acts apart from the other. Oftentimes, I'm sort of accused of doing that and said to be a Nestorian, but actually that both natures work together, each doing what's proper to it. Okay, so theological tangent aside, back to 1 Corinthians 15, what we see in that passage is time after time, there are hints in context that what Paul is talking about is Christ's human nature. So the overall topic of 1 Corinthians 15 is the bodily resurrection. That's the subject of a human nature. Paul has just cited uh, earlier two passages of scripture um, from the Old Testament, um, and each of them in the Old Testament context are talking about the role of the human Messiah. Um, Paul has been talking about Christ as the last Adam, and he contrasts Christ with Adam. So again, thinking about his human role. Um, so this is the only place in the entire New Testament where uh, the Greek word that can be translated as to submit, hupotasso, uh, um, is actually applied to the son outside of the context of his first century life. Um, and everything in the passage tells me that what's in mind here is his human submission, fulfilling the role that Adam should have in the first place. And then at some point that new Adam, last Adam, mediatorial role will be over with. And at that point, um, that is when we have the direct reign of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so I provide all the footnotes and documentation of that in the book. But um, in a nutshell, I, I just don't see anything in the Bible that would require us to say that the Son eternally submits. And I see lots of theological reasons for saying that we should not make that claim. So I, I know that there are egalitarians that have brought up and taken issue with um, with ESS, EFS. Uh, when we did our first episode on it, we were accused of forwarding the feminist agenda. So <laughs> um, our opponents of EFS, evangelical feminists, I know you kind of talked about this a little earlier. Right. Um, no. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, if, if you're defining feminist as you know, endorsing the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, then call me a feminist. I'll take it. But that's not a very accurate term. I prefer to be called a, you know, pro-Nicene Trinitarian. Um, feminist is sort of the boogeyman in evangelicalism. Um, you throw that word around and it incites fears of, um, I don't honestly know what, but something very scary, apparently. Um, and so being able to label uh, those who challenge eternal submission as feminists is a nice little tool to allow us to not engage arguments and to instead dismiss um, as obviously wrong because they're associated with this greatly despised group. Um, but truth be told, there are many complementarians um, who have challenged this doctrine since 2016, especially, um, and that even egalitarians who have challenged this doctrine that I've spoken with don't really appreciate that terminology of evangelical feminists because they believe it distorts um, what it is that they're trying to do. Um, and I, I really don't like, as this debate has unfolded, how labels have sometimes been, been more important than arguments themselves. Um, and in fairness, this has happened on both sides. Oftentimes, those who support eternal uh, eternal functional subordination are called Arians, and I, I don't find that particularly accurate either. Um, those who object are called evangelical feminists. I mentioned a minute ago that, um, you know, oftentimes myself or others who make those Christological arguments are called Nestorians. Um, none of those labels are accurate and none of them are helpful. I think eternal functional subordination is deeply wrong, and I know people who accept EFS think that I'm wrong. Um, but I'm no evangelical feminist and there are no Aryans. So let's stick to the arguments and not pollute the well by using these inaccurate labels. That's my two cents. 
Well, I think that's very insightful. Um, Colleen and I have certainly seen uh, that name calling and labeling uh, in action uh, with our discussions. But, well, I may bring uh, it on for you again. Who knows? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> at this point, you know. One of the things that we want to talk about and kind of to wrap up some of this discussion is, you know, you talk about uh, Christ's obedience, about whether or not it's uh, obligatory, like required according to him being submissive, or whether or not he died willingly and voluntarily. And I want to ask you to explain to us what the implications are for us regarding the gospel in this discussion. Great question. Um, you know, it's providential. It's good timing. I was actually just teaching Anselm of Canterbury's satisfaction theory in a historical theology class this morning. Um, and it's interesting. I have many students that were raised in church and they can explain um, that Christ died for us so that we don't have to face our punishment. They can explain that he paid, you know, paid the price for our sins. Um, but when you press them a little bit and you say, well, why is it that his death paid for my sins? Why is it that I needed someone on the cross instead of another solution? And oftentimes there's not much of an explanation that they can provide there. Well, the Bible says so. I mean, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. Why does the Bible say so? What's the logic behind this that the Bible's getting at? And then they can't go any further. Um, and I think oftentimes, um, particularly at a lay level, um, I'm, I think most theologians grasp uh, Anselm's texts, but at a lay level, oftentimes we praise God for dying for us and we don't get into the behind the scenes what's happening here. But I think going behind the scenes is really important. And I think that's where we run into problems with eternal functional subordination. So Anselm, uh, in his book, Why the God-Man, Cardeus Homo, um, explains the transaction of the cross in this way. Um, when we sin, we have dishonored God, or we have at least tried to dishonor God. God can't change, so we don't really harm his honor. Um, and the byproduct of this, because of the justice of God, is that we need to make recompense. Not only do we need to stop dishonoring God, but we need to do something to make up for the harm that we tried to do. And the problem is there's nothing we can do to make up for it, because every instant of my life and everything that I have is given to me by God to use for the glory of God, for his honor. So what could I possibly give beyond what I already have to give anyway? The logic of uh, the cross, according to Anselm, is that the son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. And as a human being, he lives a fully obedient life so that he doesn't have this debt from sin where he's dishonored the father. Um, the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans. So the son doesn't have to die, and yet he chooses to die anyway. Um, because he um, obeys the father, he's aware that the powers of this world are going to oppose him, and it's going to result in his death. Um, and we read in the Gospels that uh, Christ says at his trial, I could call a legion of angels to protect me, but he doesn't. So he obeys the father, knowing it will lead to his death where he doesn't have to die, and he doesn't save his life where he could, and he dies. So he has given, in human form, something to the Father he didn't have to give. He's given his life. And the byproduct of his giving his life, because he gave it to show how much he honored the Father, is that he's now earned a reward. Um, the same principle of justice that says sin requires a debt says that an act of this sort earns a reward. But the logic is also reversed because here the son being God has everything that the father has. So what could the father possibly give him? And that's where the son essentially says, um, take the reward that I've earned and give it to the humans that I represent. And that's the basis for our justification. Why is it that um, I can stand before the judgment seat of God and be declared innocent because of the merits of Christ? The reformers will eventually explain this in terms of solus Christus. Christ alone is the explanation for any merit I have before God. I have done nothing. I am a debtor. Christ has paid my debt and earned a reward that he's given to me. So that's the heart of the gospel. And, and some things have changed. So the emphasis on honor in particular maybe has been uh, modified a bit in the reformers. But that basic principle of Christ voluntarily dying to pay for our debts is retained um, across the board in the reformers. 
Um, some of them add a greater emphasis on punishment, on penal substitution. Not only did he pay our debts, he bore our punishment. But they don't negate that basic logic that Christ gave something he didn't have to so that we might receive this reward and justification. The problem here with eternal submission is if you claim that how this actually works is that what everything the son does, the father has commanded him to do, and he has submitted to and obeyed doing, it takes away the gratuitousness of that death on the cross. Because if the father has commanded the son, go and die, then the son is now under a moral obligation to die. And his death now is only for himself. He is fulfilling that obligation, which he has as the eternally submissive one. So he's not done anything extra. So he's earned no reward. So he has nothing to count by imputation toward my account, which means I'm not justified, which means the gospel is destroyed. Sure, we might be able to reformulate our understanding of what's happening in Paul. Um, I don't want to fully say, you know, Anselm is the gospel, Paul's the gospel, but in my understanding, what Anselm's doing and what the reformers adopted is the best explanation for what's going on behind the scenes to explain the imputation of Christ's merit to me. And I don't know of any alternatives um, that really satisfy me. And when you go through many of the folks who support uh, EFS, or ESS, or whatever you'd like to call it, they're endorsing the same explanations of the cross, but they haven't realized the problem we run into when we make Christ's actions obligatory and not a result of the joint willing of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Anselm actually developed, or didn't develop, he deployed a philosophical concept of consequent necessity or subsequent necessity to say the only reason Christ had to die, the only reason is this necessary is because he first willed himself jointly with Father and Spirit because they share the same will. He willed first that he would create a world that he would have to die for, knowing that they would sin. There is nothing prior to his willing that requires this. Eternal submission says there is something prior. It's the command of the Father. Um, And that just doesn't fit with Anselm's account of the cross. And it doesn't fit with most Reformation-era theology explaining the cross, uh, which I think should cause major concern here, which is not something that most people really address in this debate. Yeah, the quote that Rachel referenced has been um, showing up on social media the last week, being passed around. And so, um, reading your book and then continuously seeing this quote, I thought that was an important thing to address. There really is so many implications that come from that view that I think aren't discussed a lot. Well, we, we really appreciate you um, coming on the podcast. I think this was really helpful, even though we've discussed it before, this kind of approached it a little different and got into some things we haven't discussed before. And we'll just tell our listeners, we highly recommend that you uh, buy the book because it's going to dig in even more to some of the things that we've talked about here. And I will link on in the episode notes where you can buy it. You can buy it right from the publisher or on Amazon. You can get the Kindle version. So thank you so much for joining us. And thanks so much for having me and listening to everything.